first of all, you come in and you're like, okay, this is going up. Number go up technology. This is going to be brilliant. This is going to be $50,000 in about six months' time. What's the high? $68,500, $69,000. Well, if we go back there, then I can sell out and I've got all of these dollars. No one thinks that way in our space. We're here for the money. We want the money. Bitcoin is the money. We don't want the fiat currency. Even when it's $300,000 per Bitcoin, doesn't matter. We don't want to give up the money for the currency because we understand the complete difference. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say, look, just six months ago, whenever it was, it was 60,000. Now it's 22,000. You're crazy. You've made a bad decision. We're not looking six months. We're looking eternity. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Daniel Prince, who is a Bitcoiner, an author, and the host of the Once Bitten Podcast. So Prince has a really interesting story about working in the finance industry and really kind of doing the whole nine to five grind and then having a time in his life where he went on a different path and decided to go traveling with his family, homeschool the kids and really live much more of a independent and kind of sovereign life. And I think this is something which really appeals to a lot of people and especially now that people are losing trust and faith in the traditional institutions. I think this really just highlights that it is possible to live a different kind of life. So we also talk about Bitcoin, of course, and how that can be used as a tool to further self-sovereignty. But I tried to approach Bitcoin in this episode in a way that was answering a lot of the questions that I've heard people asking recently, especially people who don't have Bitcoin or are new to Bitcoin, because I know there's a lot of skepticism out there and not everyone listening to this podcast is a Bitcoiner or really believes and has faith in Bitcoin. So I did try to answer some of those questions myself and also give Princey the opportunity to answer some of those questions as well, because I think ultimately we all agree that people need to become more self-sovereign and they need to take more power away from governments that have become too centralized and too powerful and too influential over people's lives. But I recognize that a lot of people don't think that Bitcoin has a part to play in that or don't believe that it's a, an important part. And I really think it's crucial. So we definitely tried to, to tackle some of those main criticisms, ones which I've certainly been hearing recently. So I hope that this does help to answer some of the questions that people might have who are still Bitcoin skeptics. I'm thinking in my next Bitcoin themed episode to have the entire conversation purely around fielding some of these really key questions that people have who are skeptical about Bitcoin. So maybe do an entire hour or hour and a half long conversation where it's just purely going through those key criticisms and explaining why Bitcoin is useful and also in particular why it's not a tool for the cabal or not a tool for people to own nothing and be happy because I really think that it's the absolute antithesis of that idea. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. If you enjoy it, please give it a share on social media. As I said in the last episode, my account has been severely throttled and I really struggle to get any reach on my tweets these days. So anything you can do to share the episode out will be hugely appreciated. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star review in whichever podcast app you're listening on. And if you're new to the podcast, please give it a subscribe. I'm sure there will be a lot of conversations previous to this one and coming up in future episodes that will interest you. Final thing is there are now two ways you can support the show. The first is via Bitcoin tips on the Twitter page. If you just click on the tip icon, then that will allow you to give a Bitcoin donation. And also if you click the link in the bio for staying free pod, then there's a new link there for buy me a coffee, which will allow you to give a small donation. And of course, all donations are really appreciated. There are costs involved with running this podcast and any donations will really help towards paying those costs. All right, that's enough for the intro. Let's get into the episode. Hi, 
I am a fan of your podcast. It was one of the podcasts which got me into maximalism. It was probably yours and John Ballas' podcast that were the two that pulled me over to the maxi side. So thanks for that. Oh, great to hear. And, and what... um. Yeah, it's nice to know that that John and I are, are having an effect on on some people. John's a great friend. Um, he was uh, very instrumental in my own journey, listening to his podcast uh, and oh, some others he? before me. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that awesome. Was, yeah, it was um, it was a great uh, a great podcast for me to to learn from. And shout out to the other guys as well. You know, Brady. Before Brady was at Swan, he was. Uh, doing his own Citizen Bitcoin podcast, and I would listen to that as much as I could. Stefan, obviously, still has his thing yes. going. Peter with What Bitcoin Did. They were the four that I would really kind of... <laughs> I remember the days where you'd be like standing on hot coals waiting for the next Bitcoin podcast episode to drop. Like There, there just yeah. wasn't enough content. I couldn't get enough. Part of the reason that I started thinking to myself, not that I thought there was a niche in the market or anything like that. It's just I... I had this message and how could I share it and should I start a podcast? And that that's kind of where all of that thought process started leading me down the road to, yes, you should. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about doing a Bitcoin podcast. I mean, this all kind of started when I had a Telegram group where I was just talking about Bitcoin and just doing monologues about it. Um, and someone suggested in that Telegram group um, that maybe I actually turn it into a, into a podcast. Uh, that was that was Ollie, so shout out to Ollie if he's, uh, if he's listening. And um so I was thinking about doing a Bitcoin podcast, but there is a lot of stuff out there now. Like you said, I mean, back in the day when I first started getting into Bitcoin content, it was really listening to, I don't even remember the World Crypto Network. It was with um, it was with Vortex and Mad Bitcoins. Um, I mean, these guys just are not really big anymore, but this was like 2016 and they were pretty kind of um, bootleg kind of conversations. That, that was all it was just on YouTube. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, fell away from listening to stuff for a little while and then kind of got back in and around um, 2019, 2020 to Bitcoin only podcast. And, and then, uh, you know, I kind of went, I kind of went back down the rabbit hole, essentially. I think that, that bear market, I just took a bit of space from it because it was quite brutal. Um, but yeah. And then um, obviously start, started this, but I decided not to, not to make it a Bitcoin podcast in the end, just because one, there's a lot of people doing great stuff in that area already. And two, I kind of wanted to, my, vision for this was to kind of marry the the freedom movement that's going on around the world and marry that with the bitcoin movement so you know i want to obviously have conversations about bitcoin which is you know this being one of them um but i also kind of didn't want to exclude conversations um and content that would interest people who aren't necessarily bitcoiners who haven't kind of started that journey even though i think that they they will come to it in the end mm -hmm. they yeah, will yeah, come so, to it <laughs> yeah for sure so yeah um my audience generally it's, it's mostly not Bitcoiners, but I try to have these these conversations and try to kind of marry those um, ideas uh, that are kind of floating around between people in the freedom community and uh, Bitcoiners because I, I genuinely think there's so much overlap there and people just don't necessarily know it yet. So yeah, um, I want to start by going into some of uh, your history because I have heard you talk about it a little bit on, on your podcast, um, but my listeners won't necessarily know your background. So do you mind just telling us a uh, bit of background as to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, starting from where, I suppose. Uh, born and raised, uh, a young Essex lad uh, on the southeast uh, of England. Um, did the, the whole usual thing, went to the local primary school, went to the local state secondary school, uh, went, did the A-level thing, 
couldn't stand academia anymore and, and managed to find myself a job rather than, uh, you know, try and force myself into uh, university. And I started working in uh, foreign exchange markets uh, in, in London uh, by virtue of the fact that my father was in, uh, he was in the banking industry. He worked in foreign exchange sales. Uh, so his network was all of that kind of network. Uh, I did not end up in banking, but I ended up on the brokerage side of uh, foreign exchange markets where you just are literally putting buyers and sellers together. And I walked into the dollar mark uh, spot desk. Um, spot just means you, you do the trade right there and then, whereas a future markets, um, you're trading uh, to a future date, a future contract. Um, and that was crazy. That was when we still had Deutschmarks. Uh, you know, this was the mid nineties. We still had French francs. We still had Italian lira. We still had Spanish peseta. And I had never given money a second thought. You know, uh, it's something you earned. And uh, of of course, I knew different countries had different currencies, and because we'd been on holiday and whatever else. But I didn't realize that there was this whole world out there that was trading these contracts. Um, you know in tens of millions, uh, sometimes hundreds of millions, a clip every second of every day. It was uh, intoxicating. Uh, I was incentivized by the money and wanted to, I started obviously um, seeing the lives that some of these traders and brokers were, were leading and, and they were very well paid. And that was my incentive to, to stay in that business and to to try and carve a career out of it, which I did. So I had 18 years in, in foreign exchange markets. I moved into options market, markets after uh, the, the spot markets were um, downsized because of, uh, well, one, we had the euro. Uh, so all of those markets were just completely obliterated. Uh, so you had lots of people vying for positions. And um, then all of a sudden you had, uh, electronic broking system came out, which was basically a little voice box robot doing exactly what a human being was doing. So I saw AI up close in the uh, the late 90s as well and how uh, that can have effects on uh, on people's livelihoods. Um, but I managed to get my, my, uh, my, my seat at a foreign exchange options desk. And in 99, I got the opportunity to go out to Singapore and that's where I realized this is the best place to really start building a career because there was very little competition out there. Very few people wanted to leave London or New York because they were the glory financial centers of the world. So I got an opportunity and uh, yeah, 15 years later, I was still there. And my wife and I, she was from Essex as well. She moved over with me. Uh, my wife and I, um, we, we had four kids by this stage and I, it got to the age of uh, 37, I was. Uh, and I was like, I'm just done with this. I cannot do this anymore. This is this is not fun. It was not a burnout. It was not um, even a midlife crisis. What I would class it as is a realization that I am not spending my time wisely enough. And it was, uh, I'm sure your listeners are very, familiar with the book, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And it was that book that started turning my uh, my head upside down and my whole worldview. And he he coins the, well, he, yeah, the, the phrase, uh, you're living a deferred lifestyle. And that really hit home with me because I knew I was. And I wasn't seeing my kids. 
not even my wife was seeing my kids really because she was just shuttling them around from school to event to sport thing to party and we were just on the treadmill like everybody else and i just wanted off the treadmill and so that started this this journey into how on earth do you do that how do you pull pull the plug on that and this is well before i'd even um really fallen down the bitcoin rabbit hole and um, what would that look like and is it even possible? Are other people doing it? How do you raise a family in such a fashion? Surely you need to have your kids in school. Is there a parallel system to that? And so all of these questions just started coming up. And for many of us, you stare at that wall of questions and you have no answer and you shrug your shoulder and you say, oh, well, life's a bitch. Then you die. So you just get up the next morning and carry on doing what you're doing. And this is what we've been collectively led to believe to be true. And it's, uh, it's really, uh, it, it's, it's created society that we have today, which I think everybody would agree. It's, um, it's a pretty depressed, angry, uh, society, which nobody really understands why they're so angry and why they have to work so hard and why at the end of the month, they've still got nothing. And what's the fucking point at the end of the day, especially those people that have painted themselves into a career, into a corner that they can't escape or they feel they can't escape. And it just breeds a lot of depression. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's sad, sad to see, but the answers are out there and it is achievable, but it is down to you, the individual to go make that thing happen. Okay. I want to come back to the, the four hour work week um, aspect of this. Um, but I guess, um, if you're able to just go into where that changed for you and how you came to Bitcoin, because I guess the four hour work week, it doesn't really get, go into, um, in my view, the, the kind of root causes of all of these things. It is a good guide on how to readjust your life and definitely inspires a lot of people to change how they work and how they approach life, etc. but it doesn't get to the core of the corruption. So I guess we're going to need to kind of touch on that um subject so where does bitcoin come into this this whole story for you the money's broken that's that's what it is folks there's the that's the punchline that's the that's the killer takeaway from well uh, i left march 2014 is when i walked away last day i ever sat in an office uh and ever since then just Eight years of introspection, deep dives, um, reading, listening to podcasts, figuring out, uh, you know, what, try, trying to piece all of this puzzle together. And uh, that is what ultimately led me to, to Bitcoin. And now even every day, a new epiphany. Uh, but the, the, the core fact is, and this is still something Tim misses because he's, he's not done the work yet on, on Bitcoin. He, he thinks he's done the work on crypto in, in air quotes. He's had some very high profile people on the podcast, uh, including Naval and including Nick Zabo, which was one, an incredible episode. Go back and listen to it. But they do a lot, a lot of chat still about, um, you know, Ethereum and, and smart contracts and whatever else, which, uh, is still, still getting a lot of people in a lot of trouble. So the, so the money's broken. How did that happen? Uh, and what does that mean? 
that there's two things, two fundamental things to understand. There's a difference between money and currency. You'd think that I would have known that a long time ago, having spent 18 years working with currencies. <laughs> but no, I didn't because it's very difficult to understand something truly when your salary depends on it. And my salary depended on me turning up to sit down at a desk by 6.30 a.m. just to repeat and parrot numbers and get, and get paid well for doing that uh, and being a very uh, efficient and um, effective uh, execution broker. It didn't, it didn't ever want me to understand how money come to be or currencies come to be. It didn't ever want me to understand this term fiat, this that we call it now, fiat currency, uh, and what this truly means. Uh, so, to for, for your listeners, um, you know, so let, let's let's look at money. What what is money? Money is a medium of exchange. That's as about as basic as it gets. But that medium of exchange should be agreed upon by the people within the uh, economic framework. It should be naturally agreed upon, and this is why we have such um, medium of exchanges throughout history. Go back, read uh, Nick Zabo's Shelling Out. He talks about the seashells being used as a medium of exchange. Uh, that medium of exchange was agreed upon by that group of, uh, of people that were um, expressing value to each other within that specific uh, economy. Uh, and then... When people come along, such as European settlers, and figure out that um, this medium of exchange is easy for them to get the seashells because they have boats and they have uh, fishing nets and they can use trawling tactics to get all of the shells that they need, which inflates the currency, it breaks the money. So that money was broken. And those people that were dependent on that money just got relegated into slavery, basically. The same thing happened with the agribeads in, um, in, in Africa, which Robert Breedlove writes about brilliantly in his article, Masters of Slaves and Money. Yeah. And what we have nowadays uh, is fiat currency. Money for us, as we would know it, money, well, we've never known money. Money was gold. That was what was globally agreed upon throughout thousands of years of human evolution, that money was gold. That was the most incorruptible element that you could store uh, across, um, you could store value in across um, space and time. I was born in 76, after 1971, which was when Richard Nixon completely closed like this, uh, this idea of money being backed by gold or currencies being backed by gold. So what we have today are fiat currencies. Fiat is a Latin word, which means by decree or by order of. And it is by order of your government, uh, your state of choice, that you have to use the currency they choose for you to use as a medium of exchange in our everyday economic uh, activities. And that Fiat currency by design is made to inflate away our savings. So we are forever repressed and forever kept exactly where we are needed to be as a proletariat class or whatever you want to call it, if you're you know, into Orwell. Um, 
Now, that's what I mean about like when the money is broken, making an economic decision is almost impossible because you do not get the clear signals from the other people, the other participants in the marketplace. It's all noise. We have no idea what the true value of something is because our currency supply is being manipulated all of the time. That's what quantitative easing has been since 2008. You, you just flood the system. They flooded the system with seashells, if you want to call it that, uh, as that analogy, or with agribeads, but instead they're using US dollars or they're using pounds in the case of the UK listeners. And you've probably seen that Rishi Sunak, he comes on television every now and then and says, we have just printed an extra 150 billion pounds into the economy to spur the market and to spur the um, the real estate market and to make people feel good about themselves and nobody's going to go poor. Whereas he's doing the exact same opposite. He's making people poorer because that money is coming into the existing currency base and he's devaluing the purchasing power of the the tokens that we've already worked hard enough in the past to hold. Uh, so you have this inflationary fiat currency that is designed by design to lose its purchasing power over time. Or you have Bitcoin, which is the complete opposite set of rules uh, to that. So um, that's what I mean about the money is broken. And when you have broken money, money is so important to our species. We're the only species. This is what sets our species apart from anything else on the planet. This idea of having a medium of exchange to express value. And if that's fucked, we're fucked. And that's why everyone is so angry and depressed and can't figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with a lot of what you say. I mean, it's just it's just basically um a lot of people they don't have a place to um kind of they don't have a target for that anger. They they know something's wrong, they know that the system is is corrupt, but they they kind of look at all of these things and, you know, they'll say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's the WEF's fault or it's the WHO or it's this or it's the Democrats or it's, you know, Trump or whoever people blame. But ultimately, below all of it, there is this foundational layer, which is corrupted, which is the money. And I agree with everything you're saying about um, in terms of inflating the monetary supply will make people poorer. But it actually goes a level more evil than that, because what this has actually done is they have they have inflated um the value of money so much now that the only way that people have been able to get any yield is to put all of their money into investments you know in particular you know for instance um, pension funds there's no way you're going to get any return on a pension fund um unless it's invested in the stock market now the stock market has been inflated through this um kind of fiat paradigm and now everyone's sitting on these pension funds which are tanking in value because they've now decided to ratchet up the interest rates. So now what you've got is it's going the other way. Just just when they've got everyone hooked on these um, investments in order to get some kind of yield, now they ratchet it up. Oh, they ratchet up the um, the interest rates and they they stop printing money. At least they have temporarily. I'm sure it will will resume for various reasons. But right now it's now crashing the markets and everyone's getting even more poor because they've got out of the cash in order to get into these. Um, you know, risky investments essentially um, that were not risky when the money is totally free flowing and ubiquitous, and you know the market is just being flooded. And now they're in a position where those investments are 
turning red. So, so it's like mm-hmm. you can't escape, right? And this is why I think um, Bitcoin is so important and why it has to be taken very, very seriously. And, you know, I, I don't think that people in the kind of freedom community outside of what is essentially quite a close-knit Bitcoin community are taking this as seriously as they should. Because what I think they're not recognizing is they're looking at Bitcoin as an investment like anything else. Like, you know, oh yeah, Bitcoin's going to go up because they're printing money, et cetera. It's like, no, 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 Bitcoin is the alternative to that entire system. It's not an investment. It's not based on anything. It's not a a company which has to succeed in order for you to keep value. The system just has to keep going. People just have to continue to to believe in it, continue to um, kind of not even necessarily invest in it, but just just hold that value, just hold that value yourself, take sovereignty over your wealth. That's all that is required. Um, you know, the system just needs to continue to perpetuate. It's not like it has to do anything, anything more. It's not a company that has to make some huge profits. And, you know, this is where Bitcoin is different fundamentally from all of the shit coins, essentially. You know, that's what mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to do. Bitcoin just needs to continue. And as it continues, um, we escape this paradigm altogether. You know, and we have the first opportunity in the whole of human history to escape this, you know, because I know a lot of people who I talk to um, regularly on Twitter and stuff, they will say things like, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have real value. You know, gold is real money, et cetera. Now, gold got us where we are today. If gold was useful as money, we would be trading in gold coins. And, and people don't seem to address this point that, you know, gold has gold has been a predeterminate factor in the fiat paradigm itself because it has fundamental drawbacks that it's it's not um, purposed for global money. Bitcoin fixes those those issues. Um so yeah, I'll I'll, um, I'll I'll stop my own run on that, but just uh, just uh, I, I guess to, to kind of to kind of turn that into a question is how do you address people? Because I know that you know I'm going to have people listening to this who they just think that Bitcoin is it has no value that it's imagine it's you know got an imagined value, and you know I get this all the time that people say oh Bitcoin is the ultimate you'll own nothing and be happy. I get this all the time. That's that's like the new. Thing that's triggering me that Bitcoin um, has no value. It, it's own nothing and be happy because it's it's non tangible. It's not a real thing. It's all just numbers on the screen, etc. H- how do you respond to that? Um, hopefully, you can Im- improve on my kind of on my rant here and, <laughs> and, and give maybe a bit more of an articulated answer on it. Uh, yeah. So to just to improve on your rant, what is happening? Um, people are being forced into making investments. Which, like, that is sick. Like, that really, they're being forced into the casino, basically. Because if if their money would just hold its purchasing power, just at the very least, just hold its purchasing power, you wouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't have to spend 50 hours a week doing your nine to five, and then at the weekend or in your spare time or in your lunchtime, researching different stocks to pick and, you know, try and enter the, the casino. Um, and even then, even if you do make a uh, some kind of profit, so you're forced into risking that money that you've made for yourself by expending your time and your energy, then you're putting it at risk. Only the stuff that you can afford to put to risk, I hope. Uh, God, please, no one ever do margin trading or leverage to, to enter into any asset, including Bitcoin. So these people are being forced into to making these investment decisions. So even if they win on these in, in air quotes and you sell out at a profit, you're then taxed on that 
for capital gains. So it's really, really sick. Um, and another way to look at it is, so it comes back to, 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 to money and um, currency again. When you're investing in just stocks and shares, as a basic example, you're always thinking, I want this to go up so in future I have more pounds. So in two or three years' time, I can sell out and get £10,000 extra back. But that is still just fiat money that is for fiat currency, excuse me, that is going to be inflated away and by design is going to, uh, you know, go down in purchasing power. Whereas when we talk about this in Bitcoin terms, we never look at where you get to a certain point. First of all, you come in and you're like, okay, this is going up. Number go up technology. This is going to be brilliant. This is going to be $50,000 in about six months time. What's the highest? 68 and a half, $69,000. Well, if we go back there, then I can sell out and I've got all of these dollars. No one thinks that way in our space. What we are, we, we're here for the money. We want the money. Bitcoin is the money. We don't want the fiat currency. Even when it's $300,000 per Bitcoin, doesn't matter. We don't want to give up the money for the currency because we understand the complete difference. And our purchasing power of, of our units of Bitcoin, which we call Satoshis, are always going to go up in value compared to the purchasing power of our pounds and pennies always going to go down in value. So it's it's getting getting that straight in your mind, which obviously is a very, very hard thing to do. It took me many years to stop looking even at the price of Bitcoin compared to pounds, dollars, or whatever else. Uh, because as we we have a saying in the in the space, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And um in in 10 to 15 years' time, that one Bitcoin the purchasing power of that one Bitcoin is going to be, I mean, just astronomical. Astronomical. Because yeah, right yeah. now, only one, let's say only one to 3% of people have even invested in Bitcoin, to use that term. Out of that one to 3%, only about half to 1% truly value Bitcoin for what, what we see it is as. And that's already a price of 25,000 pounds or dollars like today, if you uh, if we were to look at it, I think it's, uh, it's down a little bit, but it's been as high as $70,000. So that just infinitesimal amount of the global population have already valued this thing at God knows how much more than gold has ever been valued. We are so early that it's ridiculous. And if just another 5% of the globe turn up and say, right, okay, we're going to start investing into Bitcoin and we now value it as well, the, the price against, uh, you know, wh whether you're using dollars, whatever metric you're using, is just going to skyrocket. Yeah. And the more they print into the system as well, the more fiat that gets printed into the system deflates the purchasing power of that fiat against any asset that you're trying to buy, including Bitcoin. So there's two forces at work. I agree. Uh, and um, I just want to be cognizant of my audience here because I, the thing is, I think that we're all going to agree, you know, you're going to agree, I'm going to agree, and the people listening are going to agree that fiat currency is trash. The, the difference um, that I see amongst the people who aren't kind of high, hardcore Bitcoiners 
is that they see, I would say, kind of three other key categories that they would put either on a par or in many cases above Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. One would be would be gold. The other would be shit coins. You know, a lot of people they're like, oh yeah, um, I've got some Bitcoin, but I also want Ethereum and I also want um, you know Cardano and XRP and all of these other nonsense coins. And then the third one would probably be the people who have gone fully black pilled and are just like, no, all I want is tin food, ammo, and backyard chickens. Right? Like th- these seem to be the three things that that crop up. So I think that yeah, y- your point um, is really important about um, about fiat money. And, um, I think that we're all going to agree on that. So I want to try and tackle some of those, those other mm-hmm. areas. So yep. I'll start on the gold one. And I'll just give my, my thoughts on the gold one and kind of my, my response to gold. Gold, as I said before, has led us to the fiat paradigm that we have now. You know, the problem fundamentally with gold is that it's physical. So a lot, a lot of people will say, oh, well, Bitcoin is not physical and therefore, uh, you know, it has no value. Well, we had something that was physical um, that was a store of value. It's called gold. And what happened? Well, because of the difficulty of moving it around, because of the difficulty to divide it, because of the difficulty to verify it, you know, if you want to verify gold and make sure it's not, for instance, you know, tungsten or something, you actually have to be a professional at doing that. If you want to divide it, you've got to be professional at doing that. Um, And if you want to transport it, then you need third parties. If you want to store it, generally, you're going to need third parties. And even if you decide to store it yourself, the government can knock on your door and they can take it from you. Now, Bitcoin's intangibility is a benefit, not a downside. This is what a lot of people, I think, have failed to re- recognize in the in the kind of freedom community who just think, oh, well, it's digital and therefore I shouldn't pay attention to it because, you know, obviously it's just um, a cabal asset of some sort. Well, no, I mean, Bitcoin has improved on the fundamental aspect of gold, which make it, um, make it, able to be self-custodied by the individual, right? So, so it's true self-sovereignty. I, I don't know if you have anything anything more on that one. I want, I want to address all three of those that I mentioned, but unless you have anything else to, to add, on, add on gold before I move on. No, I think you've summed it up very well. Uh, it's, um, yeah, no, nothing to add. Nothing to add. Okay, okay, great. So so that that's gold. Now, the other ones that I mentioned, so so I guess let's turn to, to shit coins for a minute and I'll call them mm-hmm. altcoins generously, <laughs> momentarily. <laughs> you can go on whatever you like. What is the, uh, the problem with altcoins? Why is Bitcoin fundamentally different from buying um, Ethereum or any of these other kind of crypto assets as people call them? Right, well, first of all, it's... Uh... There is no CEO or great big um, founder that is um, out there on some kind of dog and pony show trying to sell you Bitcoin. He's not got a great big marketing team behind him. It's completely um, decentralized. So for those that don't know the story, uh, Bitcoin, many believe, is a uh, a discovery rather than invention uh, discovered by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonymous name. Nobody actually knows this person's real name or whether it was a group of people. But he was building this uh, on top of decades of work that come before him from other people that had already tried to solve these problems uh, before the Bitcoin um, network. Uh, so this wasn't just like you know a, a guy just sitting there, just, oh, Eureka. No, he was, he was pulling on lots of different projects that had come before him, but he just managed to like, piece all of those puzzles together it's like ah yes bam it works and that's what that's why we're here today that's a one-shot deal 
Like you, you that's as Michael Saylor would say, you know, you discovered fire and you want to trade it. Like, no, you don't. It's like, um, it's like the wheel, like his is a perfect example. Um, you have the wheel that comes along in, uh, in, in our species, um, evolution. And now all of a sudden you can transport goods in a much easier fashion and much more efficient, much more effective. And then you get some charlatan come along and say, yo guys, I got a new wheel. Like it's way better than the, uh, than this wheel you have over here. And you're like, well, wheel seems pretty perfect. Like it's already working perfectly. You know, it's, uh, it's all good. But he just like, no, this, and he just like sells, 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 sells. And of course, his wheel is just a slight design on the original wheel. Maybe it's like uh, hexagonal. And um, sure enough, it's going to break. And it's going to leave you with absolutely nothing. Because the wheel was the discovery, right? That's what Bitcoin is. And everything that's come along ever since has well what what evolutions have we gone through like uh you know, blockchain technology distributed ledger technology um all of the ico scams um you know all of these different crypto ideas defi now we've got yield farming all of this stuff is just like right okay let's iterate on the wheel and bitcoin is the wheel it just sits there doing its thing that's what it's designed to do and it will do that for eternity because that is what it's designed to do. And we have this issuance schedule as well. Um, so this gets back to inflation. The inflationary nature of the uh, the monetary policy around government um, currency, fiat currency, where they just inflate the currency. Uh, you never know when they're going to do that. You never, ever know when they're going to do that. Whereas with Bitcoin, as it's coming into existence, uh, obviously the Bitcoin needs to be minted into the, uh, into the network so people can uh, interact with it and hold it. Uh, we know that that is part of one of the fundamental rules of the uh, of the network. We know the issuance schedule of Bitcoin. It's every ten minutes at the moment. Uh, six and a quarter Bitcoin comes onto the system, and we know the exact time and the exact date that this is going to play out, all the way up to well, it's scheduled to be May twenty one forty when the last Bitcoin is going to, uh, or the last Satoshi is going to be mined into existence. And then we're on our own. Like, that's it. That's the, that's the global economy. We'll all be running on a Bitcoin standard by then. Uh, I, I rambled a little bit. So what makes it alt different, coins. right, was the original. Yeah, altcoins. So altcoins, they take, they take what Bitcoin, they take the discovery of Bitcoin and then just put their own little bells or whistles on it and their own little they'll say it's too slow and ours is much faster and they will market to that. It's classic marketing. It's classic startup kind of venture-backed behavior, which they all are, by the way. They're all startup venture-backed companies that are trying to do the next big thing. And they're, they're backed by money that doesn't give – no, they're not. They're backed by currency that doesn't care about what we're trying to achieve with um, – with Bitcoin is backed by currency that is looking for an exit on its investment because that is exactly what venture capitalists are looking for. So here's the money, go do all the marketing, go get everybody buying this token for, you know, whatever reason, whatever that imagined idea might be. And then we've got, you know, we're in first, 
There's been a pre-mine generally. So everybody's got the tokens, the fresh tokens before they even hit the rest of the market, get all the people to buy as many as possible, loads of marketing, cute little um, animals or something to promote this thing. And then sure enough, two, three, four, five years later, however long it's going to take, those original insiders, they all dump it, they sell out, they take as many dollars on the back of it as possible and leave everybody else, the retail guys, holding the bags as this thing just falls in value and just goes away forever. Yeah, That's yeah. the main I mean, difference. The, the, the pre-mine thing is just so um, nefarious. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, projects like Ethereum, which you know, I just have no idea how it's managed to even retain as much prominence as it has because you literally need to do five minutes of research to realize that this thing has a pre-mine. And in my view, anything with a pre-mine, like you don't even need to look any further. You don't even need to kind of turn to page two in why not to um, invest or to give any credibility to that shitcoin. Like a pre-mine immediately um, strikes it out as a legitimate project. And that's like mm -hmm. 98% of the projects out there have a, have a pre-mine. Like, that, you know, they all ultimately have... Um, some founder or some group of investors or some, you know, organization that's been kind of, you know, created to have the first issuance of the tokens. So, you know, this is the thing. Ethereum, this is, uh, Ethereum's yeah. just around still because it's a scammer's marketplace. That's what Vitalik built. So yeah. everything now that comes along and says, oh, we're built on Ethereum. It's like, all right, okay, of course you are. Because there's no right. other, like because you want to like you want to promote oh we're blockchain friendly or we're DeFi or we've got this DAP or you know what there's only one or we're looking into Web three yeah we're going to build it on the Ethereum network I'm going to build it on the Ethereum network so all of these scammy bastards are coming in and this is the only thing that's given Ethereum any kind of value at all and it's just, yeah. it's it's going to crumble in front of people and it's just yeah it's well, very, it very dangerous well, it actually is happening now and and you know I mean. If you're in this market long enough, if you're in this space long enough, you eventually just see um, these projects, they get hyped and they eventually crash. And the thing is, like, we have to always remember, like, what are we doing here? Like, what, what are we doing here? Ultimately, what we're doing is we're trying to take sovereignty over our wealth. And to do that, you need maximum decentralization. Anything that does mm -hmm. not prioritize maximum decentralization um, is a project doomed to ultimate failure because it doesn't address the fundamental issue at hand. And the thing with um, all of these other projects is because they can't compete with Bitcoin on decentralization, they try to compete on some other factor. And any other factor which you're attempting to improve upon Bitcoin, i.e., you know, faster transactions or, or whatever it might be, cheaper fees, they will fundamentally um, they will disrupt um, decentralization, or they will they will kind of not prioritize decentralization, or they'll they'll allow that to to be a secondary issue in order to in order to push this other use case and um that but you know the problem is <laughs> with that approach is that when you destroy the um actual thing that we're trying to to do which is take sovereignty over our own wealth because you say okay well i want faster transactions so therefore you compromise on decentralization and therefore um at the end of it you end up with a token which doesn't solve the problem which this whole thing was created in order to address so I think that's important to, to remember, you know, for people who get pulled in by these these narratives. You know, I've seen every narrative, even just Ethereum alone. I'm losing track of the number of narratives on this on on this project. And ultimately, mm -hmm. um, every single one of them, even if you believe in them, um, these these narratives that are, that are kind of portrayed, they 
compromise on decentralization and therefore you you've just kind of you've you've killed the thing that you were attempting to solve if you were ever attempting to solve it at all you have that central point of failure and that central point of failure is vitalic buterin and if you're holding ethereum or anything that's held or any other shitcoin that is uh that built built on the ethereum network and you don't know who vitalic buterin is just go google and just watch a few youtube videos and then just wonder, do I actually want all of my wealth in this guy's hands? Because there's been some pretty impressive CEOs in uh, in our lifetime. Um, you know, maybe you bought Apple stock because you believed in Steve Jobs' vision. You know, great. That that definitely worked out. <laughs> Go check out Vitalik Buterin, man. You'll probably be selling your ETH pretty soon if you've, ne- if you've never looked into <laughs> that. <laughs> okay. So... Um- <laughs> So just moving on to that that last point that I mentioned again you know I, I am trying to to keep in mind here all of the the people on bitcoin who I end up getting into arguments with about bitcoin and mm-hmm. they seem much more concerned about you know we should be buying and I don't necessarily disagree with with this in general but um I don't think there is an alternative to bitcoin but this idea that you know we should just be buying land we should be um, growing our own food and 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 keeping backyard chickens, etc., and that that's the answer to um, all of this to get sovereign. Like we just need to essentially kind of become more community orientated and and you know not even rely on the internet. A lot of, a lot of these people they don't they don't even believe that the internet necessarily is going to be around. They think that you know the WEF or something is going to pull a plug on the internet. Um, you know, w- which by the way would basically be the end of the Great Reset if they decide to pull the plug on the internet. But that aside, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you respond to to those kind of um those kind yeah. of ideas you know we shouldn't be buying something digital everything should be you know physical not even necessarily gold but actually uh, you know something you can live on yeah for sure your, your guns and ammos and um your food we got backyard chickens love them they're the best eggs and bacon for breakfast every morning you know that's uh, that's brilliant um the, the again yeah it comes back to the idea of and I, I want to point out to, to your listeners if if they're not in the Bitcoin space, but they are, and there are there's a ton of conversation around this with Bitcoiners who are doing the exact same thing. They've bought land, they're building their own house or their own community, uh, whether that's centered around um, homeschooling or whether that's centered around uh, regenerative farming techniques. Uh, there's so much going on in the space. Uh, there, there's one guy living out in the Isle of Man. He um, he. He bought a forest. He's harvested that forest. He's now milled that lumber into perfect, you know, building material. And now he's making his own hand-built shepherd's huts, which he intends to, uh, you know, sell on to, um, if he can, to campsites, but perfectly campsites that are owned by Bitcoiners and uh, sharing the vision. Or to those people in the Bitcoin community who are looking, who have the land and are looking to start building out and can have the shelter before they start the, uh, the bigger, um, project. There's so much going on. And, you know, any, anybody that is looking to do this doesn't own Bitcoin yet. Come and come and have these discussions. There's, um, there used to be a Meshtadel group, um, that used to hold spaces discussions about, about this, uh, all of the time. And I would say if you are, if you, if you're leaning this way and you've got your land and you've got your shelter and you're going to grow your own food, and you're going to have your animals and you're going to rebuild community, you are 100% aligned with what Bitcoin is aligned with, 100%. The 
The only thing that Bitcoiners have differed is they've just added money to that list. That's it. They've got guns as well. They've got ammo. They've got tinned foods and whatever else. But they just added money. They want money to be a part of that self-sovereign package. And money is not, as we discussed, is not a stack of fiat pounds in a vault that uh, that you keep or fiat dollars. Money to us is Bitcoin, which we've stacked with whatever fiat currency we could afford to use. Uh, and we do hold that. Um, this can be addressed, uh, this physical, this idea of it not being physical. We do hold that physically on what we call a, a hardware wallet. Uh, and that is very transportable, very easy to hide, very easy to keep safe. And uh, we have that linked to uh, a 12-word passphrase or a 24-word passphrase, which many of us have remembered. And that is just an extra um, arrow in your quiver to take you self-sovereign. What? Why wouldn't you do that, I guess, is the... So when I put myself in their shoes, I, I think it comes back to what's well, stopping people generally is this um, lack of trust in yourself to understand financial markets in, in air quotes. And you mistakenly batching Bitcoin in with an investment thesis or, you know, some kind of financial instrument or derivative of something that's been designed by Wall Street. Um, now, we, our financial education is dire. Uh, there is a reason for that. Um, you know, there, there is a reason you do not learn about financial markets or investment uh, throughout schooling. Um, you, they, they want you to feel uh, completely... Uh, in the dark when when you're trying to make uh, economic decisions so it holds people back and i i get a lot from people who's like well i don't understand finance so i'm just never going to be able to understand bitcoin that's the biggest pushback i get oh it's okay for you you worked in financial markets so you understand what they're talking about but i don't understand and i've never worked in financial markets or oh, i don't like anything about money and uh, you know i just uh, no so i'm not going to touch it i'm going to lose all my money uh, whereas the opposite, in in fact, is is true that when you start learning about Bitcoin, which is very easy to do now because there are soft touches like this on on your podcast, or there are um, even God knows how many books now in the space. There never used to be just two years ago. Articles, uh, magazines, YouTube videos, uh, podcasts. There's so much, and you can get up to speed so very, very quickly. And when you take away this fear that it's some kind of financial instrument, which it's not, and we view it as money that our species has discovered and is evolving onto, that's a whole new different way to start coming at this thing. And it's, um, it's truly having zero Bitcoin is far riskier in the long run than, than having than owning any and that's what I think people have got to get comfortable with um, with understanding yeah there's a couple of things that I would just like to to add for add to that how are you for time by the way fine man okay okay cool so the two things that I would well there's probably three things I'd add um, but you did a really really good job of explaining that I, I love the, the the way that you um, 
talked about you know just adding money as as an extra arrow to your quiver that that is great um the, the things that i would add to that is that first of all there's always going to be money i think that you know we don't want to get into this um idea of imagining a world in which we're all going to go back to a barter system that you're going to you know just trade um you know a, a chicken for someone's you know bag of potatoes or whatever i mean this is just first of all incredibly unrealistic but also it goes against fundamental human nature like this is just not the way that humans um operate we've always had money you know like you were saying princey before you know we had shells at one point you know when we didn't have shells we had beads there's always been an attempt by humans to have a form of money now now gold was the best attempt of that but it's not going to go away just because we say okay um like i don't like it you know i don't like the the idea of this thing you know this thing that's digital or non-tangible it's not going to go away we're always going to have a, a need for money and it's always going to manifest in some way so even if um we try to get rid of it. it. It will always be um, part of human nature. So we just want to try and get the best form of money that we possibly can. And, you know, I believe, and obviously you believe as well, that Bitcoin is that thing. And the other thing is, yes, of course, you know, people like Bill Gates and, and all of these, these kind of rich elites, yes, they're, they're, they want to they buy up uh, farmland and this, that, and the other. And it's easy to think, oh, well, that's what we should be doing. We should just be buying up farmland and doing what Bill Gates is doing because, you know, there's a war to there's a war on to kind of secure the food supply and all of this kind of thing. Now, you know, ultimately even people like Bill Gates, they are going to have to surrender themselves to a form of money. I mean, um, these people also have to accept something. They have to trade in something, you know, they can't just, um, every time they want to buy something, just section off a bit of their farm and say, you can have a bit of my farm. They will have to default to a form of money as well. And we need to ensure that Bitcoin is that form of money. So this fight for Bitcoin is for Bitcoin as a form of money is not coming at the expense um, of, you know, securing our self-sovereignty or protecting ourselves against these, these kind of elites that, you know, want to turn us into a surf class. It's quite the opposite. What we're doing is we're ensuring there is always a mechanism for, for trade and a medium of exchange, which we are ultimately in control of that's fully um, decentralized. So I think we've, we've, we've covered those, those three areas I, w- I wanted to cover. Now, there's a few a few more areas I want to go, but let's first of all talk about the one that's staring us in the face, which is the price. Because I'm looking at the I'm looking at Bitbo right now. Bitcoin just went below twenty three thousand dollars, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of no coiners out there on Twitter who are screaming, "Ah, look how wrong you were! Bitcoin was at you know sixty eight and a half thousand dollars, and now it's at twenty two and a half thousand. Um, you know, it, it's 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 dead basically." Um, how would you respond to that? What a perfect time to buy some Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, it's true. It, it's amazing how many people wanted to buy it at 60,000 and how few people want to buy it at 25,000. You know, it, it, it's human nature. So when this thing starts pumping again, well, it comes back again, doesn't it? What did I say earlier? Something just like about 1% to 3% of the world have uh, in- invested any of their fiat currencies into Bitcoin, and it's still 20000 What's gold? Like 2000 I don't even know the price of gold. It seems to always be at 2000 <laughs> All right. So it's, it's still 10 times the price of gold, and only 1% to 3% of us have even put in any kind of effort to understand what it is. That's mind-blowing. 
That's mind blowing. And it's not, I mean, we've been here before. I don't know how many times you've seen these drawdowns, but I'm completely immune to them. Um, just because, um, not because I'm high and mighty and whatever else, but because I've, I've done the work. Uh, I've been down the rabbit hole. I've felt the pain. I've lived through like the, the 2016, 17 crash, 18, whenever it was. Yeah. 17 was the hype cycle. And then 18 was the crash, um, all the way back down, all the way back down to three grand. And I was happy so happy that we went down there. And, uh, yeah, that year I stacked more Bitcoin than I ever had before. Uh, and I was, um, I just felt, uh, lucky. Is that the word fortunate that, um, I got this chance that other people as well would get the chance to buy Bitcoin way lower than, than where it had ever been before. So for, for those people that are now like looking at it and it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, look, just three months ago, six months ago, whenever it was, it was 60,000. Now it's 22,000. Like you guys are, you're crazy. You've made a bad decision. We're not looking six months. We're looking eternity. Yeah. I, you know, this, this, this Bitcoin that I own and have self-custodied will be passed down through my family, through generations. Uh, you cannot do that. You can do that with gold. hundred percent you can. Uh, but you cannot do that with um, with with my, uh, currencies. So the the idea that I would ever want to sell out of my Bitcoin for fiat currencies again is kind of ludicrous to me. I will use it. I will spend it for things that we need. And as as time progresses, uh, we might want to buy some land and build a house and build a little you know farm. I will use Bitcoin to make that purchase, but I won't be looking to to sell it uh, just to get back um, to some fiat currencies. So yeah, um, it's a difficult one though because the sticker price people are so. That's what they concentrate on. That's what they concentrate yeah. on all the time. For in the early days, and definitely for um, for those people that have never bought any before. Uh, but I would just say, if you've never bought any before. Buy some, buy some now, yeah. just a tenner. Something that I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of people in the, in the kind of freedom community, you know, a lot of people who are following me on Twitter, you know, people who are probably listening to this podcast, they do the difficult thing. You know, when it came to, um, the kind of Corona hysteria, they went mm -hmm. against the grain on it. You know, they were willing to speak out, you know, and when it comes to other things like, um, growing their own food. You know, a lot of people, it, that's the hard thing to do. The hard thing to do is to grow your own food. It, the easy thing to do is just to go to the, to the supermarket, right? Like all of these yep. things, they take um, conviction. And if you want to be more self-sovereign, you've got to be willing to go through hard times. And, you know, the contradiction that I see here is a lot of these same people who are saying, you know, I'll go for the, I'll go for the difficult life over the easy life if I remain free and all this kind of stuff. But then they expect to, um, come into this space to buy Bitcoin and to have the easiest ride in the world. And it's just going to ride all the way to hundred K and they can just live a great life. And, you know, Bitcoin tests you, it tests your character. Um, and there have been so many of these drawdowns and a lot of people exit the market, they exit the market and they walk out and they walk away and they say, you know, I'm done. And they don't have the staying power and they, they weren't there for 
the revolution. They were there for for quick gains. And those people mm-hmm. are going to get tossed out of the market. You know, but I really want people who have those values of saying, I'm going to do the hard thing over the e- easier thing if it makes me more sovereign, to actually apply that same principle to Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I think that what a lot of it comes down to, this kind of, you know, rejection of Bitcoin within the uh, a large contingent of the kind of freedom community. I think what it comes down to is that they haven't got in already and they essentially don't want to feed, they, they, they kind of, it's easier to say, oh, well, it's going to zero than to accept that, you know, maybe something around some people are onto something that, you know, you should be onto as well. You know, there's kind of a sunken cost fallacy here at play, which is I didn't get into Bitcoin and um, they see the price going up and then they say, okay, well, I'm not going to buy it. I'm going to just hate on it because it makes me feel bad about the fact that I haven't got in on it. You know, I, you know, all these people are, it's a Ponzi scheme, blah, blah, blah. You know, and that works for a while. And then what they do is they either buy the top or it has a big crash and they say, oh, look, I was right. It crashed and it crashes, you know, maybe maybe 50% of the way down, but it's it's gone up by, you know, 800%. Um, and then they say, oh, well, look, it's crashed down. And, you know, most of us who have been in this market for maybe four or five years, like at least one cycle, are sitting on a profit. You know, th- this doesn't really affect us. We know that it's going to go up and it's going to go down, but this is what, being, um, you know, having a kind of low time preference approach, this is what it's about. You know, it's about staying in the market longer and being willing to go through the times that are difficult and seeing it through. Mm. And, you know, Bitcoin selects for those people. And, you know, I do think that a lot of people in the freedom community have got that within them who are, you know, that they, they have that characteristic. I just wish that it was expressed more. hundred percent. Like freedom maxis, this is, um, it's it's built for you. It, it's uh, it, it's really it, it truly is. And yeah, I like your point about um, sticking around and you know figuring out how to grow your own food. And that that's trial and error, right? That you, I'm sure people here have read many books uh, about you know getting started. I've got John Seymour's book out there. You know, it's the Bible of the space of the uh, the self sustainable. Um, you know, plant my own vegetables every year. Uh, then a, a hailstorm comes along and just wipes me out and I've got absolutely zero to show for my efforts. It's the same thing as Bitcoin probably going down a little bit. But you you keep coming back. Uh, the, the shit I've learned about keeping chickens, um, you know, the, the, the shit you learn about um, how, how you can hand pollinate courgette plants or pumpkin plants, right? This is stuff you learn. And stuff that you pick up by trial and error and figure out and by entering into community of people that are doing this and getting your, uh, your biodiverse, uh, um, grains and learning about, um, perennials and, uh, and where to plant certain crops and where not to and how to pair all of this kind of stuff together. Huge knowledge. Learning about Bitcoin is just an extension of that. And it's, um, it's addictive once you once you start to learn about it and everything else starts unfold like we, to take us all the way back to the beginning when you realize that the money is broken and that bitcoin um can you know start re- and people communities can really start reorganizing around uh, around bitcoin uh, a perfect example in El Salvador down in bitcoin beach what they're doing down there uh, you know it's still early days but communities can be built around this medium exchange and it can protect you. It's going to protect you certainly from uh, the inflationary nature of uh, our monetary policy 
and um, it's going to be there for for you forever, as long as you self custody it and learn how to do that. But again, that's not doesn't take a technical genius to to, to figure it all out. Yeah, great point. Great point. Um, just uh, finally, then um, I want to talk a little bit um, just about how you're living your life now, because you know, obviously, we got your life story up until the point of. Um, living in Singapore and then kind of realizing you wanted to change. I know now you're living in, in France and, um, you know, you're, you're living a very different lifestyle. So I'm hoping you can just go into that a bit. Like what does that sovereign life look like for you? Yeah. So I'll take this one back to 2014 where I finished. That's where I, um, I'd finished reading the, uh, the four hour work week It changed my mind upside down, turned my mind upside down, excuse me. And, um, we, we just got to thinking like, um, what can we do? How can we live differently? What's, what's, what do we want to do? Actually, what do we want to do? And the idea was, well, if you're going to quit your career, what, what would we want to do? What would we want to travel? Because we were living in Asia at the time. And it was kind of, okay, clearly going to have to go back somewhere and get a job in financial markets at some point. But before we do that, what should we do? Let's travel with the kids and see as much of this region as we can whilst we're in this part of the world, right? Because conventional thinking was maybe we'll just end up in England and I'll have to get a job in London and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So that was kind of like the loose plan. We sold everything. Uh, We kept some beautiful pieces of furniture that we had uh, acquired throughout our time living in Asia that we just wanted to keep forever and ship them back to uh, to the UK and uh, stash them away in uh, an, an undisclosed location. But they're, they're with us again now. Um, and we um, we started looking into what would a world look like if we took the kids out of school and started traveling with them. They were aged eight, six, and two three-year-old twins. So four kids aged under eight. And... Um, we had no answers to that. So we had to hit the, uh, the internet, find all the family blogs, find all the homeschooling information. Is this possible? Is this legal? Because at that point, I'd just been Mr. Blue Pill Normie. You know, I, it was going to be try and get your kids through the best education possible. Don't question the system. Believe in the teachers. Believe in the process. Put your head down and just grind this out until you're 70 and then maybe you can retire. Uh, so when we realized that there's a bunch of families out there doing this already, that they'd taken their kids out of school and they were traveling the world, that gave us the confidence and we connected with some. Uh, you can do that easily, uh, you know, Facebook groups, Telegram groups nowadays. But back in then, back in those days, back in 2014, it was all just uh, on Facebook. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we got the, the confidence to go for it. So we also fell into a home swapping community um, because, you know, having lived in Asia for 15 years, uh, I had, we had already bought a uh, property with a little bit of land in Thailand, uh, which we thought we would use as uh, holiday destinations as we were building a family, you know, and uh, just to have in, in the family forever, basically, to pass down to our kids and of course, prices then were, were much lower to buy property than um, than anywhere else in the world. 
So we went there for the first two months. Uh, luckily, nobody was renting at that point. And we just kind of tried to come to terms with what we had just done. <laughs> it was the first was the first kind of overriding emotion. Uh, it's like, holy shit, what have we just done? And freedom hadn't even kicked in to me yet that uh, that the monkey mind is so overpowering. That first two weeks, you think your monkey mind just thinks you're on a family holiday. It's cool. It can handle that. Uh, but any time after that, all of a sudden it kicks in, like, what the hell have you just done? You're unemployed. You're probably unemployable because of the stupid decision that you've made and no manager or, you know, anybody else is ever going to take you seriously again. You've got four kids outside of an education system. You're going to ruin their lives and you're going to put your wife through, you know, hell. So that kicks in. And then you've got to face down uh, those demons. And that's when you start doing a lot of, uh, of soul searching. Uh, and then we, we were still committed to making this trip happen, making this thing work. Like that's what we decided to do. That's what we budgeted for. So I'd found uh, this idea of home swapping. So we started reaching out to other people on this website. We found lovehomeswap.com and I called up the CEO and I had a chat with her and she's like, yeah, list your property and, you know, let's see how it goes because it was a new startup. And uh, yeah, sure enough, we started getting approached from people all around the world. And we're like, okay, well, that's the accommodation part solved. We could now start traveling and building an itinerary around free accommodation and being um, dropped straight into uh, a community, which the homeowner was more than happy to introduce you to the neighbors, tell you where the local um, amenities were the local tourist sites, the local, you know, shops and, you know, best restaurants uh, and parks and museums and whatever, you know, depending on what, whatever you're, um, uh, wherever you were uh, visiting. And um, all of a sudden, six months just rushes past us. And that's when the freedom maximalism started kicking in because no one had been chasing us for anything. We were perpetual tourists. No one cared about us. There was no administrative bureaucrat trying to send us some kind of piece of paper. The, the tax I owed in Singapore was on, uh, or it was all digitally handled. Uh, and, uh, you know, those liabilities were all fine and, and, you know, accounted for. It was nothing. We didn't have school reports. We didn't have school meetings. We didn't have ballet lessons. We didn't have this lesson. We didn't. It was, it was just us. And it was bliss. And it was the most amazing feeling I think any of us could have ever felt because you knew each day that you woke up, whatever you were going to do that day was on your time, on your decision on your research, on your back, and nobody could stop what you were, you know, planning to do. And it was truly, um, truly amazing. And then, then you start going through a different formation um, where, like, a lot of people call it ego death. I was struggling with um, a... Uh, 
crisis of um what's the word i'm looking for here it's escaped me meaning not meaning uh, identity identity okay because that kicks in and you're like well who are you like who are you because for 18 years prior to that i could answer you in a i'm a foreign exchange broker now like you'd like it's it's a classic Zoolander Zoolander two, you know, where they're calling across the rooftops at each other. I don't know if you've ever seen the film. Who are you? When you're looking for yeah, like you say, looking right, for yeah, meaning. I, I don't remember it, but <laughs> <laughs> but you you are looking for meaning, and it's um you you do uh, a deep a deep dive into that because all of a sudden you've got this identity crisis on your plate, and it wasn't just for me either; it was for my wife. Because uh, she was going through like, well, who am I? I'm no longer the the expatriate wife that lives in Singapore with the four kids. And, you know, because that was her identity. And now you just got to start completely redefining who you are. And and how do you do that if you've got, um, you know, nothing to hang your, your hat on to? And then it's like, well, we're a traveling family. Okay, what does that mean? What, what do those people do? Well, I started um, writing a blog right at the beginning of the uh, of the trip just to keep uh, friends and family up to date of what we were doing and uh, where we were i wasn't a big fan of facebook so i just built around my own website learned how to do that it was very very easy it turned out i just used uh, weebly.com back in those days and built a little blog and kept everybody up to date and then that blog started attracting media attention so when we were down in australia we had um the Times newspaper that was based out of Perth come and do an interview and take pictures and like you know, what you're doing is is really amazing and very um, kind of uh, mo- uh, inspiring and motivating other people to think differently about life. It's like, okay, yeah, happily do that. Then a UK U- two UK newspapers uh, approached us. So we'd been in the Mirror um, and um, and the Times, um, the Times travel section front page of the whole like pullout. Uh, that were interested in uh, in running a story about what we were doing. So all of a sudden it's like, shit, there's, there's people out there that want to live this life but just don't know how to, and they're just looking for other families that have done it to to help uh, inspire them. Um, and after two and a half years, we we after the initial six months we were supposed to go for, that turned into two and a half years. Uh, and um, it's addictive once you realize that freedom part uh, and then I ended up writing the book, Choose Life, which was all about uh, going through these decisions, going through these dark times, facing down these demons and uh, all of the different little adventures that we had on the way, um, which has got some amazing feedback. And I'm really happy to have met some people that have read the book and have since taken their kids out of school. Uh, and the most touching moment, we were on a beach in Spain at a um, a world schooling meetup Uh there was a little town down there called La Haradera where a lot of world schoolers just kind of congregated and started their own, their own little community. This is what we're going to do. We're going to start our community. It's a world schooling hub. Any homeschoolers, unschoolers, um, whatever, schoolers, alternative schoolers, you want to call yourself traveling families, come. And uh, they would run writing lessons. They would run art lessons. They'd run swimming lessons, canoeing lessons, football lessons, you know, the, the, the fathers and the mothers would put all this together and use each other's skills. In fact, one 16 year old girl was, was teaching a poetry class and the kids loved that. And, you know, you sign up and she, she, she would earn like two euros per head sort of thing. So 
This is, I'm sure, what freedom maximalists are talking about when you're trying to build co communities. So we were there and we were on the beach and I was talking to um, one uh, one couple and uh, all of a sudden the, the lady turned around to me and said, oh, wait a minute, I kind of know your story. Who are you? I said, oh, we are the Prince family. Wait, yes, you you wrote the book Choose Life. And then his her husband turned around like, wait, what? You're like, that's the book. Like, that's the book that made me quit my job. That's the book that made me like, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> hope it's, wow, that's awesome. Hope it's going well for you. Um, and he said, well, you gotta, you got to meet my daughter. So he calls the daughter over and says, oh, oh by the way, this is how she was 13 years old. And she said, uh, this is Daniel and his wife, Claire. And um, she's like, oh, yes, nice to meet you. This is the thing about unschooled or homeschooled kids. They look you in the eye and shake your hand and ask you questions immediately. Uh, because they're not used to them being told to sit down and shut up and don't talk and, you know, raise your hand if you want to be spoken to. Right. And um, then her th then her father said, uh, yeah, he wrote the book. And she's like, all oh, right, yeah, and then looked at her dad, and he's like, yeah, the book. And then she looked at me and said, what, <laughs> the book? I said, I, I think so. <laughs> if you're talking about Choose Life, and she's like, oh, my God. Oh my God. She's like, you have no idea. You have no idea if it was not for your book. I remember the day my dad come home and he told me he'd read this book and this is going to take. She, I was so unhappy at school. I was so, I am living like such an amazing life and I can't, it is. And then you realize like the, the, the power of the word and you, you don't know who you're inspiring. Um, and that just made all of the experiences that we had had and all of the hard work of uh, writing the book, uh, you know, so, so tangible again, right. We come back to that word, like tangible, who'd have thought emotions were tangible until like you're faced with them right there in front of you. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, stories like that can change people's lives for, for the better. Uh, so once after two and a half years, we were starting to feel um, uh, travel fatigue. Uh, there was a, a new questions were being asked about um, from ourselves introspectively, like, uh, well, we like, literally can't do this forever. Uh, so what is it that we are looking to achieve? And, and of course, um, for my wife and I, it was like, well, what, what can we give the children out of this? You know, of course, they'd had an amazing time. But if we could give them any one thing in life, what would that be? And we both agreed it would be the ability to speak another language. Uh, we, we, we settled on that. Like, you know, the experiences that we'd seen um, certainly opened up our, uh, our minds. And um, because most people, were like, you know, yeah, we've got, they've got to be good at math or they've got to be good at certain sport. We were like, no, it's got to be another language because that opens up all kinds of different um, avenues in your brain. So we were staying in France at the time. We were house sitting. We'd been house sitting for two months where you just look after somebody's property, again, uh, rent-free. And, um, yeah, the kids had shown interest in learning French. We were having a lovely time. Uh, it was a beautiful summer. And we found a long-term rental. And then – we kind of reversed track. We we knew the best way for them to learn a language was to be immersed in it, and that meant putting them into a system again. And that was really difficult. I found that so difficult, putting like dropping them back off at the school gates again, 
um, was was a tough thing to do. However, they were they were very very happy to be going in and playing um, with with some of the kids, and uh, we knew that would be the the quickest route to getting the language in them. And uh, sure enough, after uh, four years, they're all they were all fluent, and then um, then COVID rears its ugly head, and all of the uh, the schools are shut down. And we were both secretly so happy. <laughs> and then we confided in each other like, this is like, we cannot send them back to this. So three out of the four have never gone back. And um, our oldest, she's uh, nearing 17. She's um, she's made the decision that she would like to, you know, finish off what she'd started and, and get her, um, they call it a back here in, um, in France. I guess it's like your GCSE or half an A-level equivalent. Um, so she has a year left of that, and then um, we plan to to travel again as soon as that's done, uh, because we want to stay location independent. We have, um, as we've talked about in this podcast, we we have uh, you know a, a good percent of our um, savings now locked up in um, in Bitcoin, and we're happy that that's safe and that's going to see us through forever and generationally. So we don't want to pin our hat on um, on any one country. We want to go and explore and have as many um, experiences as a young family as, as we can because time passes you by so quickly. And time is our ultimate currency. And uh, we have to use that as wisely as we can. And, and I just want to live as free as possible. And I don't want to be beholden to any systems, certainly not um, in, in France, which is overbearing. Uh, with the bureaucracy and the administration, so yeah, we'll um, we'll, we'll we'll be on the move again in uh, in a year to eighteen months. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for for sharing all that. I've actually learned a lot there. I, I didn't know I I've uh, heard kind of bits from your own podcast, but I've never kind of heard such a complete story um, about kind of everything that's happened since leaving Singapore. So um, yeah, that was um, that's so awesome. It sounds like you really really transformed your life and. Obviously, that Bitcoin's played a big part in that as well, which is which is really great to hear. I hope you make it out to to Mexico at some point. Have you got any plans to uh, go over to North America or South America? That's South exactly Carolina, what maybe? we want to do. <laughs> yes, hundred um, percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I'll be focused on Europe for the next um, year or so because finally we're getting a lot of good um, meetups here uh in europe and and conferences and one actually that your listeners might be interested in i'm going to be speaking at a conference in prague in october it's uh over 21st to 23rd of october and it's called liberty in our lifetime and it's uh, about parallel structures it's not bitcoin focused it's a it's put on by the free cities foundation i don't know if you're uh aware of those guys yep Yep. So they're putting it on and uh, there's going to be a bunch of different speakers there and it's going to be a really good kind of um, melting pot of ideas of alternative. I'll be doing a speech, an alternative structure to the education system. And uh, obviously someone's going to do the alternative uh, structure to how the financial system. I think Stefan Navarro is going to handle that on the Bitcoin side. But then it's like alternative everything, you know, what's the alternative structure to food, to health, to medicine, to, um, you know, you name it, farming, um, living, community building, 
which is what Free City Foundation is all about. Uh, you know, building communities within um, uh, around like-minded people that that want the same kind of um, thing out of life, rather than all of us just mold ourselves into massive cities and you know, like uh, surrounded by people but with zero community. It makes no sense, like none at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. No, that that sounds like a really, really good event. I, I'm sure that a lot of people will be interested in that. And we do want to get out to Mexico. It's like number one country on our bucket list. We want to do Central South America because that is, they can't, you know, we did not hit that part of the world when we were doing the, all of the, the home swapping. We never got down down there. So, yeah, we want to do Mexico and then hit as many of those different countries that we can. And we will definitely get to El Salvador and go and visit Bitcoin Beach and see what's um, going on there. Great, great. Well, when you make it out to Mexico, eventually, definitely give me a shout. It'd be uh, be great to meet up. Um, before we uh, round things off, um, just let people know where they can find you. I know you've already mentioned your book, but just any other channels that people can find you. And then also just any kind of closing messages that you have for my listeners. Sure. Firstly, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been uh, it's been great to get to know you and I definitely want to come and um visit you in in mexico uh, i know it's a big country and there's a lot of uh, bitcoiners and, and freedom maximalists down there so uh it's um I, I hear great things about the country uh if people are interested in learning more about uh, the book um it's just choose life you can find that on amazon it's going to be listed very soon it's going to be live on consensus network where you can uh, head over there you can use bitcoin to pay for it or normal money currencies um so but uh, they're a great team doing great work in a in a freedom way they're trying to decentralize uh publishing so a lot of time for nico and the team over there my podcast is called right. once bitten and you can um check that out uh, on any of the uh the platforms i push people to go and check out fountain app because they are doing great work trying to decentralize uh, content and they're trying, you know, this whole podcasting 2.0 movement, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Fountain App is a, is a great um, place to go and listen. And if you've never bought Bitcoin before, I think still if you if you download that Fountain App and create uh, your first account, I think you get a thousand Satoshis straight away in your inbuilt wallet, which you can use to stream um to to podcasters whilst you're listening to their content so it's this idea of distributed micropayments and supporting uh, the content creators which uh is you know is going to redefine everything that we know about content consumption as well in the next five to ten years uh i would say that's probably it um yeah huge uh huge respect for what you're doing and, and thank you for having me on yeah thank you so much for coming on and i hope we get to speak again down the line 100 percent, man take care Cheers.